Hello and welcome to Satorial Stories, LCF's object-based podcast in which I, Susanna Cordner, invite in a guest who works in or with fashion, ask them to bring an item from their work or from their wardrobe. My guest for this episode is Oriana Padley, the Dean of Research at UAL, that's University Arts London, of which LCF is a part. We recorded this interview in person pre-lockdown, so we don't refer to that during our conversation. Just to note, there's some light buzzing in the background of the audio. Oriana covers such an interesting range of subjects during our discussion, and I hope you still enjoy it. Thank you. series, we're inviting people who work in or with fashion and see how their professions influence the ways in which they think about and relate to clothing. So to set the scene, could you please introduce yourself and describe your practice and profession? Um, so uh, my name's Oriana Badley. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of the Arts and I'm Dean of Research for the University. Um, people jokingly call me the mother of the house now because I think I've worked here almost longer than anyone else because I started quite young. I was 23 when I started teaching as an, um, a part-time lecturer, visiting lecturer. Uh, and I started at Camberwell, which at that point wasn't part of anything else. It was just a college on its own. But eventually, over my career, I worked in lots of different colleges. And now I'm the sort of recipient of, of the collective memories of, of many years of change across the university, I suppose. But also, excitingly, I, I get to talk to everyone in the university about the work they're doing. Mm. So that's great. That's fantastic. The idea of having that kind of umbrella perspective over the whole university, but also to have seen it progress from those individual yeah. college yeah. identities and your own work to have progressed alongside it. In terms of my own work, mm. as a, I, I'm an art historian, cultural theorist by training, uh, and my specific expertise has always been around, um, uh, started uh, about European perceptions of ancient Mexico, um, but then it expanded into um, Central and, and Latin American art and culture in general. Mm. Um, and in terms of fashion, my, 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 I suppose my key link with fashion and I think it came out of working at, at Camberwell where, where I was in an arts context um, I wrote a, an essay in the early, in 1991 I think it was um, about Frida Kahlo and the um, appropriation of her image in fashion magazines, in Vogue, in Elle in Cosmopolitan and no one had actually talked about Frida Kahlo in that kind of way mm. before. And even though it was a really small article, it's become probably the article by me that's been read by more people. Yeah, I read it, it in advance of today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very odd. Really it, it, it got onto reading lists in American universities, mm. and it's been it's just one of those things that people use on basic introductions to a subject. Yeah. Um, even though now it's obviously very dated, it's from a long time ago, but still, it, 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 my heart is still with yeah, it because abs- it was one of the first times as a as a writer, you know, I'd been very much in the strictures of having to do my master's, my PhD, you know, write things that people told me to write. It was the first time I used my own initiative mm. uh, and brought together different aspects of what I was interested in uh, and felt confident enough to write in my own voice. Yeah, in your own voice, very nice. And also that clearly carried to the audience because yeah. it became, becomes an engager to that whole subject. And I like the idea that it's pulling on this original research interest you had around Latin America yes. and, and yes. kind of teaming it with other kind of cultural yeah. factors. 
characters. And, you know, it continues to be incredibly relevant. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the main lines between art and fashion is that kind of uh, who's influencing who. And sometimes that can be um, within design and the kind of canon of a particular designer, but it can also be within art direction and magazine presentation. So it's really interesting. So you said that your research interest started with Latin America. How did it start? How how did that come about Um, as your specialist subject? Well, I... I, I was very much a sort of London teenager. Okay. Um, I went to Holland Park Comprehensive. I was very obsessed with fashion and clothes, I suppose. Um, I used to go to the the old and then the new and then the really new Bieber in my <laughs> lunch hours. <laughs> and all our friends were, were convinced that we were the most fashionable, most sort of on point people in the world. Mm-hmm. It was horrible actually. If I saw young people now who felt like that, there was a sort of smugness about yeah. being a young Londoner. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I finished my A-levels, I, I used to call things gap years in those days, but I didn't go to university. I'd had a things with my family, my father had died or whatever, so I went, I, I, I got a job I got a job at the ICA running a slide uh, projector, which is a bit hilarious because I think I probably still can't run a slide <laughs> projector. <laughs> but, I, but it was just so because I was a sort of I was the useful component okay. of of, sure of, of, of a setup of mm-hmm. the people who are running this course on uh, contemporary art, and it was fantastic for me, I suppose, because I I just used, you know extra young. Mm. Um, woman I was I was invited to lots of things I hung out with lots of the speakers I, you know it was it was a it was an exciting time mm. um, but and there were amazing people who came some of the great sort of writers and cultural yeah. figures I can imagine being at ICA at that time that's yeah. partly about building network and getting a sense exactly. of all different kind of cultural movers I'm ho- horrified to tell you it was I think 70 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very long time ago. Um, but one of the speakers, who was actually at that point quite a young art historian as well, uh, with, called Don Addis, was an expert on surrealism in Latin America. And she came to give the talk. And I wasn't even sure what university to go mm-hmm. to. And she said, why don't you come and why don't you apply and come and study with me? It's funny because the world is so not like that anymore. Yeah. Um, and I, I liked her and I, I went down to Essex and I had an interview and um, I went there. But I went there because of her. Yes. And I was sometimes only two or three people in a class with her wow. studying um, you know, surrealism and, and Latin America and ancient Mexico. That's incredible. And I had an amazing education. Yeah. And what gave you the bug first? Was it her as personality or her paired with her subject? Too, mm-hmm. probably. I mean, she she's she stayed. We're, st- we're very good friends. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, she's a wonderful woman and a great thinker. And uh, I was very drawn to surrealism. It fitted that moment that mm. I felt my world was in as a teenager in London. Mm. You know, it wasn't telling exactly what anything had to be. It was much more discursive. Yeah. And I think that interest in creativity. And the unconscious probably underpinned lots of my drivers in that early time. Um, And when I was studying ancient Mexico, 
no one was studying ancient okay. Mexico. It was very unknown. Yeah. You know, it's funny it's now. Exciting. There was not a single Mexican restaurant in England. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, there was yeah, no, yeah. there was nothing. And then, and then in um, uh, as part of my degree, I had to do a dissertation, an undergraduate dissertation, and um, I'd had uh, a godmother I'd never known who died who was a great friend of my great grandmother she was a Victorian in wow. fact <laughs> and she had left me a thousand pounds which in those days was a lot of money um, that I was going to inherit when I was 18 mm. and so I inherited this money and very unsensibly uh, spent it all on traveling to Mexico and I went there and, and, that, and from then yeah. on I suppose yeah. I became I went to Mexico, arrived sort of, it's only a little bit after the kind of time when Alfonso Cuaron's Roma is set. And that was very much, you know, I found yeah. that very evocative of that period. And I lived in Mexico City for six weeks, I think, and then travelled all over Mexico. Oh, that's incredible. So there was a personal connection and kind of pilgrimage involved in that early part yeah. of practice and research. Um, and and uh, I went to the Museum of Contemporary Art in, in uh, Chapultepec Park in Mexico City. And I was just wandering through it and I turned a corner and I saw this painting that I thought was the most revolting painting I'd ever seen in my life. I was shocked, <laughs> shocked. And it was the two Fridas Frida Kahn. Um, no one had ever told me this artist exists, I knew nothing about her, and I was so horrified by my reaction to the painting I started to work more on, 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 on her okay. and, uh, so, so from then on really I, I got a bit of a, a sort of bug about yeah. Carlo and her work and was that uh, an act of apology or an act of a kind of acclimatisation, trying to correct that initial reaction? Well my I had, I had been quite used to things being attractive okay. and this was something that was shocking not yeah. you know it was like Andre Breton called yeah. it the ribbon around a bomb a bomb you know so it, it was the idea that something could be so kind of visceral and scary and have attractiveness you know mm. so I, I, it, it was um, no it, it was a good learning moment probably yeah, yeah. you've spoken a lot within that kind of these introductory parts on your work around uh, this idea of place, whether that's London and the smugness of an experience being a London teenager, or whether yeah. it's working in the ICA or being drawn to this university or the effect of the travel to Mexico. What role do you think place has in defining someone's practice or interest, particularly within the creative arts? I think it's really important, either positively or negatively, because okay. sometimes the place you're in is the place you really don't want to be, mm. and then other places become well, they become other, and they, they, they get em empowered with all sorts of um, values that actually come out of the place you're in, not mm -hmm. out of the place you, you're, you're fantasizing about sometimes. Yeah. So that idea about um, understanding where you are and, and defining the world you're operating in, but also the idea, I suppose, of subcultures in worlds, because place is not just about the tourist image of mm. place, it's, a, it, it's about certain people's perceptions. And obviously, gender became an important thing in understanding that as well. Mm -hmm. Because my probably my in initial uh, repulsion with the two Frieders was also not having thought through enough about sexual politics. Okay. And I 
think maybe those two things started to come together in terms of me trying to find out more about stuff. Yeah, and perhaps it being related to the uh, personal act of independence of making that move there mm. as well, and that to give you that space. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm conscious of that definitely working at UAL and working at LCF in particular, that sense of place and the students wanting to come to London and London's yes. own kind of cultural and creative history being part of the appeal. I, I, it's not just because of Brexit, it's I think in general about who I am, that I'm a Londoner, not a, I don't feel that British, but I do feel mm. very, London's very much in my, in my heart. I, I can, I, I, to be fair, I probably misled you a little, I came to London when I was 13. Okay. So London was everything you want as a teenager. Yeah. You know, so I had that thing that the students had, and everything I didn't have when I wasn't in London, I felt I got when I was in London. Mm. Um, so we've explored your practice and kind of research background a little there and um, perhaps you could centre a little bit on your role before we move to your object choice. So just to introduce to anyone who hasn't kind of heard about a dean of research before, <laughs> <laughs> please explain your role a little and how it relates to fashion. Can I go back a bit to yeah, explain it? So um, when in, in the, in the mid-90s, um, I suppose the, the then London Institute, the precursor to the University of the Arts London, uh, suddenly realised such a thing as research existed within the art school context. Mm. And what they tended to do is look to people like art historians or cultural theorists to, to run that aspect, because okay. they still believed everything was very text-based. Mm. Um, and so I became quite early on, I was, I was a very early professor at UAL, I think something like 97 or something. Mm. Um, but I was I started to run research at Campbell College of Arts, which is one of the colleges in the university, uh, mainly just because I could write documents. <laughs> I think you know, and, and and I could be like a sounding board, talking okay. to practitioners about what they were doing and helping them articulate. This is it was mm. a very sim simple time, yeah, helping yeah. them articulate, and it was those kinds of conversations where because you come from a different discipline, mm. you come from a discipline of, 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 of um, understanding different historical moments, maybe different places, you, you can help start to contextualise some of the reasons why decisions about practice are made mm. right. in a conversation, maybe, yeah. with people. So I think that's how I saw my role as helping to, to uh, uh, support other members of staff in in talking about their research activities and then that became much more of a profession within mm. um, within art and design where you had people who who were uh, uh, understanding how research was defined by funding bodies helping people write bids for money mm. um, and then of course there is this awful activity it used to be called the research uh, assessment exercise and now it's called the research excellence framework where the government every six years-ish uh, um, uh, decides how much money to give to a, a, a university on, on, on in terms of the research they're staffed to. And so nowadays, in this much more sort of, now we're much bigger as a university, it's much more sort of professionalised activity, a lot of my role is, is, is helping uh, drive the strategy of the university in order to enhance its position in things like the research excellence framework results, mm -hmm. um, thereby pushing us up the league tables yeah. and helping us, uh, and obviously helping people apply for, for grants to do the kind of work they want to do. Mm -hmm. 
I also am director of doctoral programs, so I'm ultimately responsible for all the PhD students in the university, even though they're often very well supported in their colleges. Their work all is always part of um, a kind of, uh, I don't mean monitoring exactly, but an overview yeah. by a university committee where we, we try to, it's a very lonely life if you're a PhD student, we try to help support and guarantee that they're getting the experience they need to get and the work is being supported appropriately. So it's in that, you know, I, I work with staff and with PhD students. Yeah, that's fascinating, yeah, to work with both throughout. And again, I was going to ask about whether you still get to have those, uh, I, li I liked what you said about being a sounding board, but yes. by the sounds of that, that's something that you can maybe bring into the PhD practice as well, I even do. at the university level. Yeah. You're, you're I, 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 I really, I have never given up on mm. um, teaching in that sense. I've always had PhD students, so... Um, supervised some very large number of students yeah. completion and, and it's one of those things like surgeons I've never lost one but I don't I think because I just won't let them go yeah. <laughs> I'm holding on to them for well, dear life and trying yeah. to get them to get that usually it's a matter of confidence if someone can't finish yes. it, it's to do with something else in their life that has really undermined their confidence and their ability to go ahead. Yeah, and I think there's also an element of reassuring because you spoke about almost a translation process that you did early in that role at UAL around helping people recognise research potential or frame things in a research context. And I think that still can happen in practice based. Yeah, PhDs. I mean, I don't know if that, that I don't mean that to sound patronising because no, obviously people know what it is they want to do, but sometimes people, when they're in the midst of something, and it's like the same for me if I'm trying to write something you can't see what it's going to mean to someone else um, and so trying to offer some alternative aspects of how it might appear mm -hmm. to an audience or to other people whether it be commissioners or you know museums galleries uh, uh, book publishers or whatever mm. you know it, it, it's helpful to have someone who doesn't judge you but just can be a sounding board and I think that's an important part of being a involved in, in helping people understand their potential as researchers. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I like doing, you know, I don't I don't like enforcing the rules. No. I don't like <laughs> I don't like being yeah. a policeman. Yeah. You know, obviously we have things we have to do, but I try to get people to want to do what's right for them. Definitely. Um, and your face and your body language became really energised when you're talking about that. So it's really, <laughs> really clear that that still remains a passion, which is really yeah. exciting to hear. And I can also imagine um, that because I think from the outside, UAL, I mean, UAL is highly specialised as a whole, as a university, because we specialise in the arts. But within that, there's so many different perspectives and disciplines. And the idea that your role could be all-encompassing all to that, I can imagine, feeds into what you've just described about being that... Um, uh, that uh, kind of external supportive voice on some mm. people's subjects so you won't necessarily be an expert in every single uh, paper Not decision but you will be able to give that perspective it, it, it's more an understanding of the the uh, you know it's like when, when people give you these courses on writing they always tell you there's only there's only so many plots yeah. there's <laughs> only so many. Uh, when it comes to a particular output of any kind whether whatever practice it's in whether it's in fashion or fine art or, or media or, or, or cultural studies or art history there are only certain types of things it's likely to end up being and so once you've had enough time talking to enough people you kind of get into a, a framework and I, I suppose I'm quite lucky because in 2014 I was a panellist on the government
Excellence uh, Research Excellence Framework Panel. So I read 580 outputs from across the UK. You know, so like you across the everything in art and design, uh, wow. history, theory, and practice. So you 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 do get more confident when you yes. get involved in those kinds of processes. And obviously, I I'm a peer reviewer for various things in UK and Europe. And, you know, so you get you 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 sort of know the nature of the beast you're, you're dealing with yeah. and in that way it, it's quite helpful you, you, you don't it's very important not to get too opinionated because mm. there's always multiple lots of ways to skin the cat yeah um, but it, 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 it is um, t- for me it's a little bit like a detective puzzle you know when I'm, when I'm on holiday I just sit on the beach re- reading <laughs> really rubbish <laughs> thrillers I, uh, yeah. <laughs> because I love plot yeah. um, and so for me when I speak to someone and they start to tell me what they want to do it's a little bit like trying to find the solution mm. you know I try to find it I try to help them find the solution of where they started and where they're going to end yeah. um, so and, and in that sense yeah. I, I like I like um, I don't like something that doesn't have an answer I suppose but it sounds like you don't allow there to be no answer. <laughs> You're working until there is one. Um, yeah, I, I, as a slight aside, I'd, I've, I, you're not the first academic who said that to me about loving uh, kind of getting lost in a detective novel when they're away from work. I'd love to do a series on kind of re- the reads of an academic when it's life, the end of really. the yeah, when, 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 when I was doing my PhD, I went on a writing retreat for a week with three other people in different universities who were all doing their PhDs, and they were all working so hard, and I thought, I can't. I can't do my PhD, I mm-hmm. can't do it. So I locked myself in this room, in this house we'd rented, and the, the, the bookcase was full of <laughs> Christie novels, and I pretended I was doing my PhD. Mm-hmm. And I just read the entire works of Agatha Christie, which I hadn't read before. Uh, and, you know, I finished my PhD before the other two. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, yeah, there's balance and so, progress. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> brilliant um, and one final point I wanted to draw on for what you said as well is I think there's a nice synergy between the way you've just described your role of kind of drawing out and helping someone define without limiting someone's own subject and research with the way that you described meeting that you know your future tutor when you're working at ICA yes, and someone yes. linking you something yes. you might not otherwise have been able to see yeah, I think so it's all about a sort of network of people and ideas yeah I, I, I think and I suppose UAL is very good about that mm. it's not it's not sort of completely compact because it's a monotechnic. It's n- it doesn't have these have these silos, subject silos mm. that in in some of the older universities you probably would never have escaped from one department. Mm. And I think the kind of interests I have are always quite cross disciplinary, cross subject areas. So um, something like UAL is a great place to be for that. Yeah, sounds like a perfect fit. Um, so perhaps as a kind of final part of the practice before we move on to your object, um, it would be great to give some examples of the ways in which that research work relates to passionate UAL, you know, whether it's a centre of sustainability or are there any particular projects or PhDs that kind of stand out to you within UAL's reputation? Um, well, I, 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 I love uh, working with some of the staff under College of Fashion, I must say. I, I I've got on very well with several of the key researchers there over the years, um, and I, I did I did um, collaborate with Claire Wilcox um, a couple of years ago now, isn't it, or is it just last year? Um, in, uh, and we did a university. Um, I convened the conference.
conference that accompanied the, um, the Frida Kahlo show at the V&A that she co-curated with C.S.A. Uh, Henestroso, who's my PhD student, uh, with Judith Clark. And we tried to get different people from the university involved in that conference as well. Judith gave a paper, but a lot of international speakers. Uh, and it was a wonderful occasion. And I, I, I very much enjoy working uh, with CSA. I mean, I'm probably not going to have that many more PhD students. I'm not starting, I'm not really accepting that many more now. And CSA might be one of the last mm. ones that, that I have this very... Uh, close relationship with in that we've, we've kind of worked together and traveled together as well as um, being in the same subject area. Yeah. Um, I think that started off in my early career, my first PhD students that were funded by the university scholarships and then later by research council scholarships were very much part of developing the research center for transnational art identity and nation um, and those people that I, I feel that I've worked really close with. Um, I'll, I'll always uh, appreciate that sort of relationship of working on projects with someone with PhD students. I don't know if that's sort of... No, no, I think that's wonderful. And again, <laughs> I was just thinking that it links perfectly to everything you've just described about the importance of that relationship and about yeah. what you can achieve together through it. So I think it's fascinating. And it builds on your own personal and research interests and that original ignition around... You, you never... Well, you never... Um, you know that thing. I'm always sort of boring people by saying PhD students are for life, not for Christmas. Yeah. You know, you don't ever leave lose a, a PhD student like me will always say who their supervisor was. Yeah. And you have to somehow or other recognise. First of all, you shouldn't accept one if it isn't someone that you can work with. But mm. also that their work will will continue ideas they've developed in conversations with you, yeah. you know, so so it's a fantastic kind yeah. of, uh, that, the, the network thing again. Yeah, I get it, and also the relationship. feel that enjoyment yeah. uh, of seeing how people's careers develop. Absolutely, to do. I think that's brilliant to frame that as a kind of privilege and personal connection rather than something uh, solely um, professional. Um, so within well, it has to be professional as well. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm not <laughs> making it too informal as we get. I mean, you have to recognise the, the difficulty people are going through when they're doing a PhD. Yeah, um, yeah you're right. No, yeah, no need to idealise something that's <laughs> <laughs> such hard work. And you did already speak about the isolation. And yes. therefore, I think it's really important to recognise the social benefit of a good yes. supervisor yeah. as well and of that relationship. Um, so we covered a lot of ground within that introduction. We kind of led from um, the research opportunities at university, that multidisciplinary perspective, fashion's role within that, and your own research work and, and kind of background mm -hmm. and interest. And we touched on uh, that idea of, um, I'm just really caught on the idea of you in Bieber as a teenager <laughs> and the importance of close to you and that uh, experience of being... Uh, you know, there, there were these colours. Yeah. You couldn't, you know, like everything had been... The idea that you could go into a shop and, and they would have all their different sh styles and shapes in the same, in yeah. some of the same colours, was really exciting. It was the most exciting moment um, in, in 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 terms of um, choice and, and things were cheap. I suppose mm. they were cheap. Um, I don't know. It probably wasn't that ethical in those days or whatever. But nonetheless, yeah, it was. It was such a transformation in what was possible mm. in terms of creating your identity through clothes. Yeah, absolutely. And also the the fact that the again the sense of place and sense of space was important. It was going to the Bieber store. It might understand it was a huge part of it, and that being 
social life as well yes. as your kind of yes. uh, public identity. I ha um, I, I, um, they did these um, when they were the, the, not the really small one that was in Kensington Church yeah. Street, but then they went to a slightly bigger one on the High Street before they moved across the road to the, what had been the old uh, Barkers. Um, but uh, in the, the first Kensington High Street one, they were selling these clogs, uh, cork wedge wedges with re really beautiful suede colours mm -hmm. over the top. But they were sort of clogs, but high-heeled clogs. And I bought a pair. And then I walked for, a, uh, you know, I only walked for a few days and they cracked. <laughs> and then I took them back and yeah. I said, oh, well, of course, you can have another pair. And then I realised every time I needed a new colour, <laughs> <laughs> I just had to stamp my foot, right? And I got, through, I got through four different colours <laughs> where they just, they just had to replace them. I mean, it was... That's brilliant. <laughs> so much another era. But it felt like that. You yeah, know, yeah, it yeah. was a very... Um, you know, no one was going to make a big fuss about it. No, anything, no one was you know. playing who's gorgeous. And it was true. I mean, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You had you had spotted a flaw in the design. You <laughs> yes. just use it to your advantage. Yeah, right, can yeah. it? But then but also it shows how quickly you wanted to rotate your clothes and yes. colour combinations. The, the 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 clothes I remember most from then was they did an absolutely beautiful sort of dusky rosy pink. Mm. A little bit darker than that pink, mm. nicer colour than that pink. <laughs> and I bought a pair of pink suede boots. Um, that went with a sort of jersey dress with a polo neck very tight and then billowy sleeves. And these boots, obviously, you could never... I mean, how could you go out of them? They'd get dirty. Yeah. The one thing you didn't want was for them to get dirty, right? But I remember lying in bed and putting the boots on the... Chest of drawers at the other end of the room, and just lying and looking at them, <laughs> loving those boots so much. You know, yeah, an early piece of display. Work, I was really. seventeen. <laughs> I was too old to be doing that. Yeah. but I just, I did, yeah. I just, I adored, I adored those pink suede boots. Yeah, I, I wish I'd kept them. Yeah, I know. I was, that was going to be my next question. I, I love the. I, I'm interested in the idea of aspiration around clothing, and we've got, um, uh, yeah, similar era but different designer. We've got some Mary Quant cosmetics and archives at LCF, and two of the main things, two think my favourite things that were donated to us were the paper carrier bags, and someone had kept them in a drawer, you know, pristine, who wasn't a, a collector beyond that point for forty the, years. The, when I when I was thirteen and came to London. Mary Quant lipstick was my first lipstick because it, it was the most amazing um, design. It was a sort of uh, grey steel with a black bit in the middle and a little Mary Quant sort yeah, of petal thing yeah. in the middle. Uh, and it was just so different from every other lipstick. It mm. was it was amazing. Yeah. You know, kind of yeah, and it's the kind of iconography, I think, of Quant and Bieber that make them such like signifiers of the time. It, I mean... Mary Quant was very was more my sister's generation, mm. sort of older than me, and it was much more geometric and a, mu a lot more sixties. I think Bieber had this thing of being quite sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, it was very dominated by the the um, photographic images. Yes. The, and and I think everyone and it was it, a little bit pre raphaelite Yes. A little bit. Um, more, it was very much how the 70s were going to become, mm. you know, a, a, a lot more um, sort of dusty light uh, yeah. and, and, um, and Edwardian era, uh, you know, a different mm. kind of feel to that, this is modern, yes, which, yes. which Mary Quant had. Yeah, that. 
full steam ahead. I think that links us quite nicely to the object that you've kindly brought <laughs> in. <laughs> so we've spoken there about the association between particular brands and particular eras and their identities, but also the role of fashion photography. Um, so when we first started talking about doing this interview, it was because I'd been quoted in The Guardian talking about the Laura Ashley revival, and you dropped me an email, photograph I hadn't seen in a part of your life I didn't know about. Um, so I'd love to hear more about it. So could you please introduce your object and what it tells okay. us? So um, this is a photograph of me uh, in, in an, a kind of another incarnation before, um, while I was still an undergraduate. Well, it was the year before I went to university and then while I was an undergraduate, I tried to earn some extra money um, modeling. And I was sort of lucky in that um, Holland Park being what Holland Park was. Um, one of my best friends at school was the daughter of Laura Ashley, who had been asked by her family, Jane Ashley, she'd been asked by Bernard and Laura to take photographs of her friends in Laura Ashley clothes. And this sounds like such a normal thing, but at that era, it was quite unusual that you photographed um, uh, the, the normal people. You know, when we were talking about Mary Quant yeah. or, or, yeah. or even Bieber, they, it was very much, um, you know, the sort of Sarah Moon I was trying to think yeah. about. Yeah. Very much absent, you know, like sort of um, certain models. It was, it was, it was a very uh, prescribed look. Whereas um, Jane started to take photographs of just her friends and, and other people in London uh, who she would then have wear Laura Ashley clothing, who never probably would have bought Laura Ashley okay, clothing. That's interesting, <laughs> there's a and, um, there's, uh, um, It was very much like dressing up for all of us, okay. I think. But because I was very good friends with Jane, and she, she started off quite um, more more... I don't think she'd mind me saying, you know, she was a little bit nervous mm -hmm. about doing this for her family. She didn't want to just do it because she was their daughter. She wanted to do it because she loved photography. Um, and the first photographs she ever took were of me when we were still in the sixth form at school. Um, I think there was the one in, in was actually in Holland Park. It's not the object I brought mm, in, but yeah, um, this one. This, this one is in. Yeah, this was the first photographs she ever took, which were me wearing. It was a rather sort of 1920s mm. silk, um, a replica of a 1920s silk dress that Laura actually did. Quite unusual for them. It wasn't the normal yeah. cotton floral. And um, this was in the the sort of student common room uh, in the gatehouse of Holland Park School. <laughs> and we went there after school and yeah. took that photograph. And then we took another photograph in the same dress, but with a more sort of, uh, a little sort of 1920s hat on, on, on the uh, Chelsea Embankment. And that turned into a poster and that was used quite a lot. And mm. Everyone thought it looked a little bit Virginia Woolfy. I was you thinking know, that yeah, actually, yeah. yes. Because very um, pointedly the photograph shows you inside profile. But that, but that and was frame a, by a the very intimate thing. That was yeah. just her and me. Okay. And it could have been just two friends playing around, you yeah. know. And then, because they the, the photos did quite well, we ended up, you know, me and other people, that's actually my sister, ah. um, We, you know, a whole group of friends and their families, Amazing. or whatever you like, ended up modeling for Jane. And we got much more professional at it, and we yeah. had to wear several dresses in a shoot, and, and we had other people around, and we had to carry suitcases of things, and we went to places like, this is in Paris, 
at the brasserie lip mm. um, and, that, and, and a lot of these turned into posters first of all just in the shop and then on the underground um, I remember we went to Amsterdam once and I was really freaked out because they had these sort of round um, columns that, that they put sort of theatre posters and stuff yeah. like that and there were pictures of, of me all over <laughs> the street you know uh, and then sometimes I'd see myself on the underground in posters and things like that. It must have been so surreal going from this very personal uh, experience as you say of it being kind of family or friendship orientated and there only being a couple of you there at a time to it being an international company. Well yes except we never saw much of that and this was before the age where models actually got paid very much okay. so this was I was, this thinking, was, I was wondering that <laughs> <laughs> this was you know I think I felt I was really doing well because I got maybe 50 pounds okay. for a photo shoot it was yeah. that kind of thing and and, um, uh, and I got my travel you know but we tended to go to, we went to Amsterdam to Paris and around bits of England and this is the photo I actually brought in mm. I don't know why but it's the one that's often stayed with me most mm. um, again this was just me and Jane uh, this was quite a hard dress to wear because you had to have the big petticoats underneath as well um, and I don't we, I, I'd read this book The French Lieutenant's Woman which had come <laughs> 1969 this yeah. is about 1971 uh, I think and um, we decided to go to Lyme Regis. And so this is on the cob at Lyme Regis. Oh, so nice. um, so then again, it connects to your personal reading. And, yeah, uh, my personal reading. And, you know, it, it's a good 10 years before Meryl Streep and the film. You yes, know, so it's yeah, 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 strange yeah, because it's like... Yeah, just um, for the listeners, it shows you looking out across the, across the harbour, out of the bay. And yeah, and I just really remember walking along the cob and feeling part of a different sort of era somehow that the dress was was more transforming me than usually I felt I often felt I was just putting something on and being photographed okay. but this felt much more like a play or a film say, or a acting yes. I wondered about that disjuncture you said between what you would probably personally be wearing and what you were being asked to wear so it was a pleasure to wear these clothes even though you weren't uh, they weren't things that you na naturally wanted to wear uh, I also I think I didn't often put my hair up so mm -hmm. it was unusual yeah. for me. Um, and you described, you know, these these images do look like they're from a, a, a different era. For the listeners who can't see it, um, it looks much more like a real photograph of something from another era, which was Jane's style, actually. She'd been really influenced by, um, d uh, you know, people like Dorothea Lange, of the photographs of... Um, uh, people in the Dust Bowl in the US uh, and she did quite a few photo shoots in Wales which were much more like that, like people living on farms um, but also she she done a lot of sort of looked a lot at stuff in the V&A as, as her mother did a lot of the, the patterns for the dresses came from Laura's interest in um, old patterns at the V&A mm. um, and some of the dresses were much more like how you'd imagine the sort of typical princess die look okay you know yeah. but this one was much like with the um the 1920s one which was the first dress i wore this one was again much more authentic in its detailing mm. it's much more sort of fake yeah 19th exactly. century yeah. than some of the other dresses yeah it's which were easier to wear this is more of an extreme example i yes. suppose and i think that's why it worked as an image 
I doubt many people would really want have wanted right. to be wearing that dress. Exactly. So does this end up being product or is this kind of placement for the overall feel and Well, it became a really important aspect of those early years, the really successful years of Laura. Um, were, were, were when Jane was taking the photographs and she created this aura around Laura actually yeah. that was really different to the the kinds of images they'd had before which were much more when we were talking about you know a kind of blonde model wearing yeah. things, looking very much part of the, the, the this is like a timelessness that really yeah. appealed in the 70s definitely and uh, how about your experience when you're in Lyme Regis, if this is deliberately <laughs> other? <laughs> did you uh, notice any passers-by taking particular attention? It was a, it was a rather nasty, it was not a nice day. Okay. Uh, it was not sunny, it was um, quite cold and windy. You get a bit of a sense of wind in that the skirts are blowing. Um, and really, we just wanted to do what we could do and get out, <laughs> have a cup of tea somewhere in a tea house. But, um, it's not that nice being photographed, you know, okay. like modelling clothes is not what it, people think it is. Yeah. It's actually quite, um, it's me sounding spoiled, but you know, it's quite tiring. Yeah. It's very boring if you're the model. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the photographers having to try and ensure that they've, you know, it's before digital cameras, yeah, you know, sure. trying to ensure they've got the right, uh, um, they don't want to waste the whole photo shoot, you know, they've got to take a whole series of images. but. You, you know, your own intentionality is quite repressed. Okay. I wondered that because you've described this in this element of time travel or character that this dress provoked, but actually yes. that was probably limited by circumstance and setting. I and suppose. I mean, I would proper. never have modelled for someone I didn't know, if yeah. you see what I mean. I couldn't have done it okay. because I think it would be too... Uh, I found it... I, you know, even though I wanted those extra £50, pounds, mm. I started to stop doing it. Okay. Um, the more I... I, I got into other things mm. because it was you know I just I throughout the 70s I very occasionally did it still okay um, if, if Jane really asked me but I it wasn't what I I don't think I would ever have been a good model if you know what I mean I think I think modeling requires you not to be an author you know in a way maybe That's not now with yeah. with with um, this different you know in a way models have re-owned the process but in those days it was very much you had to look like someone else wanted you to look yeah definitely and that's so interesting to hear that that was the case even when you were modeling as part of the personal relationship in connection to the person behind the camera and that yeah. you were kind of selected in that prison so it stayed very uh, brand and relationship specific working mm. with Laura Ashley through that mm. period and mm. if it carried on through the 70s you're weaving it through other parts of your life how do you feel now looking back at it and having had that past relationship to a very particular portion of fashion history if you if you look at the photo mm. you see it's very damaged yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's because for a long time I was I was really embarrassed that I'd ever done it really? and I didn't look after the photos at all and I didn't keep any of the clothing and I really was embarrassed I thought a woman couldn't be couldn't have ever modeled Laura Ashley clothes and be recognized oh as a gosh. as a important you know as academic as and thinker and so for me it was um, it was, it, I, I think I told you at the very beginning, but maybe I could just reply. Mm. When I went for my first job at UAL, um, I was being interviewed by uh, an art historian who, who ran the department at Camberwell then, and they had a Laura Ashley calendar on the back of the wall of, I, of the room I was being interviewed, and I was in the calendar. 
Canada. <laughs> um, and I, I really, I was tortured by thinking, should I say something, should I not say something? And in the end, I did, and I did get the job. Mm. <laughs> but so I felt like I was somehow a bit dirty that I mentioned yeah. it. You know, I would have rather not um, ever admitted that I'd ever done that. Past, yes. Yeah, yeah. But I couldn't. I'm not very good at, at, at being discreet, and I couldn't bear it. You know, it was like it was there. <laughs> and if you'd made the connection later, it would have been peculiar. But I, yeah, did, did you, this is quite a personal question. But do you think there was a particular prompt for feeling that way? Was there a conversation with someone? Did did, did that come from external pressures, feeling the need to split those parts of your life? I, I think people don't understand quite th what the world was like in the 70s and 80s. Right? When I when I went to university, I was I think I was only. I was a very, very small percentage, in a way, of women that went to university. When I became, when I did my PhD, again, very small. When I became a professor, I was there were only two percent of women professors in in, in in the UK. That was in the 90s. So you know, I don't mean it's always you know it's there were pluses and minuses, but it was a very different world. Mm. Um, and it wasn't just that I modelled, but also Laura Ashley became synonymous in many people's minds in the 80s and when it was taken over by the Malaysian company and it just stopped being that sort of family business mm -hmm. it had been. Um, it became synonymous with us, and it, in a way after the Princess Diana sort of thing as well, isn't it? became synonymous with being uh, a good wife, good mother, homemaker, it, it had a sort of ideology attached to it, which was quite difficult um, to associate with. I mean, Jane tried to do different things, and you know, in the later 70s, she, she photographed all the clash who she was friendly with because she was studying at Chelsea and they were all there together um, in Laura <laughs> with Laura Ashley models. I mean, those photographs are priceless, they're amazing. No, 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 <laughs> with Joe Strummer and uh, what a combination, yeah. Uh, so, those the but it was, it was that was none. You know that would have been very unusual. Yeah, that was deliberately uh, building on what uh, what the public assumption would have been and contradicting it. Right? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. That, that that's only possible because of what people imagine the brand but, to be. Um, but that's so interesting that that there, what you were perhaps pulling away from was that kind of cultural assumption about who their wearer was. Yes, um, and the yes. life that they were aspiring to through and, the purchase. And it was a sort of very English middle class. Mm. Um, a consumer who bought the clothing, you know, it wasn't sort of urban, it wasn't sort of street fashion, yeah. um, and, and my interests were rather different, you know, I, 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 I was running a stall at the same time I was doing this, I had a stall in, in um, under the flyover in Portobello Road selling um, uh, parachute suits that I'd bought, sort of um, block bought. <laughs> I was before my time, actually. I was going to say, I'll have one now. It was pre-punk, pre-punk, <laughs> and no one wanted them. Oh. I had these amazing uh, parachute suits that I bought from an army surplus um, warehouse in Docklands, which still existed in those days, um, where they sold everything by the weight, not by the item. Mm. Uh, and um, I think my husband still has one that he paints. Yeah. The <laughs> just painting so it still an somewhere, so somewhere. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah. Um, oh, but so that was more the sort of you yeah. know I was more interested in that kind of stuff and if if I had a designer I really liked at that time it maybe it would have been Ozzy Clark Celia yeah. Birtwell and maybe now people can't tell the difference between Laura Ashley and Ozzy Clark but to me there was, it was a there was a much more um, edgy 
definitely. Thing and things around their their collaboration behind it, but also the presentation of that brand. That you know, the models were incredibly expressive, and their kind it was of performance of their um, yeah. fashion shows. Yes. I, can, yeah. I can see the contrast. Um, to kind of close this section of the conversation, I'm interested here, other than me. Uh, or um, inviting you. <laughs> um, what was the prompt for feeling like you can share this now? Like the, you've spoken about anxieties around sharing this within your academic context in the past. Do you feel more comfortable with it now? And if so, what's brought that about? Well, that's a really good question. I I think it just after uh, when enough time has elapsed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> because a few years ago there was a big revival of of uh, Laura Ashley from this era. Yeah. Uh, and it's more, actually, it's almost a kind of street culture thing, right? you know, like people, particularly this year, it's been quite in. Um, but I think about five years ago, I mean, Jane had a spread in, the, in one of the supplements and, and an exhibition of her photographs. And so everything became a bit more, and, and there was an exhibition at the Fashion and Textiles Museum. Uh, so in a way, it's become a, a little bit of history, mm. and I don't mind anymore thinking, oh, that's um, that's something I was once part of. Yeah, don't mind thinking it is it's quite a neutral <laughs> response. I was I'm hoping that you've got you can take pleasure in it. No, yeah, yeah, I take pleasure in it. Yeah. But it, it, you know, I think one takes pleasure in the things that you've actually done. Okay, and I think this is really probably wimpy of me but I don't think being a model was something that I did okay I think it was something that was done to me in a right. funny kind of way yeah I think that's how it had. how it felt at the time was something that you didn't have any control over and giving up control when you're as bossy as me is quite hard um, so the things you know when we started off our conversation we were talking about that early article I ever wrote where I wrote about what I really wanted to do and so I think it's that that sense of, of when it is you feel empowered is mm. the things you feel most proud of mm. and I don't think you know like participating in other people's worlds necessarily makes you feel empowered it makes you feel like a fellow traveler and observer but not 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 um, so in control yeah so from there on in it's been about closer collaboration and uh, carving yeah, out your I own space so. for your own I work think so. Uh, there's a lot within that that I'm going to think about for hours after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to say that I don't keep you all, all day, although I could talk to you forever, um, go to a few kind of rounding up questions that are more about your personal relationship to clothes. Um, so, do you think that your work influences the way that you dress and your relationship to clothing? The fact that my entire wardrobe is black, or pale black, as uh, Natalie Brett, the head of LCC, <laughs> calls grey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I hadn't worked at UAL, mm. would would I have a would I have the Bieber clothes? And I, I mean, you, I, when I read your questions last night, when I, I suddenly remembered, which I hadn't thought of for ages, that you you asked some question about your first experience, yeah, you know, thinking about clothing, yeah. and I had the most amazing dressing up box. I've got two sisters older than me, and my mother was a very flamboyant and glamorous person who had a huge wardrobe, uh, and I when something passed from being wearable it went into the the fancy dress box and I used to adore these old clothes mm. and my first experience of kind of creating my own identity probably at the same time as as starting to work with Jane was through buying vintage clothing mm. in, in, in Portobello Road I was there every Saturday 
and my entire wardrobe was clothes from the 1940s and 1950s. And, um, I loved the the kind of uh, way you couldn't quite know what you were going to find. Yes. I loved the excitement of it. I loved the idea that you didn't quite know whether you'd look good in it. Mm. But it also picked up on my sense that there were all these clothes from my mother's past that I would sometimes wear. Um, it was quite difficult because she had a very small waist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can see that photograph. My waist Absolutely. is quite small, but hers was really small when she was young. But some of her dresses that I wore between when I was sort of 18 and 25, they were most amazing dresses from the 1950s. Mm. Um, and I think that's... I've always seen clothing as something that you dress up in, yes. you know? And maybe when you're at UAL, you know that, that if you're going to a formal thing, you have to, you dress up for it. You don't, you, you perform your clothing. Yeah. Um, when I'm just up here in my open plan office, sitting at my computer, I sometimes do the equivalent of coming in in a, a version of a black tracksuit, but it's actually Eileen Fisher and it's silk. And it's <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but at the same time, I think, dressing up I love the dressing up mm -hmm. I mean I, you know I still I love the flamboyance of, of jewelry I like bits and pieces of, of um, used to love shoes now I, I don't uh -huh. um, I mean of course I do I yeah, love but shoes in terms but, of your own personal but, but I, I find that, that shoes have to be a lot more practical mm -hmm. for me now I can't do all the walking between here and yeah, the other buildings of the job. university mm -hmm. I've gone totally over to trainers most of the time yeah. Maybe everyone's done that, actually. I think so, yeah. You know, it's off, it's the whole the get 10,000 steps thing. Yeah, you know, exactly. like, how can you do that and have nice shoes? Mm. So. Um, but I do think the dressing up box mm. is is my still my sense of the excitement of finding something that you can wear in a way that someone hasn't expected you to wear it. Yes, experimentation know. at the same time as being performative. And also the dressing up box maybe leads on to the different eras that are being referenced in the styles yes. that you enjoyed, but yeah, also yeah. those parachute silks and yes, enjoyment yes. of second hand. Um, yeah. So it all carries, yeah. I think those yeah. beautiful choices. Yeah. How about working at UAL? I personally find it fascinating, the different style cultures of the different campuses and the different colleges. I think there's, um, I'm always interested in what student and staff wear in the different sites. You, you could, uh, uh, I, I, I think I, sometimes when I'm in a shop, I'm joking, you know, I'm shopping with my sister or something, I say, oh yeah, I can wear that to Central St. Martins, you know, yeah, or, or I can do that to, so, you know, that, that there are certain things that you can, sorry, I especially wore this for you. Yeah, I love it. Can you describe that? I wondered when this we first met if it was going to be your object <laughs> as well, so please describe well, it what could you're wearing. Be. This could be, I'm wearing, unusually for me, a poncho. <laughs> the problem with ponchos is the coats that you can wear with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's problematic. But this is actually by a um, uh, Mexican designer called Carla Fernandez. Uh, who I met through the Frida Kahlo exhibition. She did the fashion show at the V&A, and we've invited her now to be a visiting professor to UAL. She has the most amazing practice in Mexico, where she works with um, different types of indigenous community groups around the skills that they have developed in making traditional clothing, but, um, but co-designs with them different clothing items that aren't just replicas of yes. indigenous clothing but fit into a sort of um, couture concept yeah. um, and she has various um, 
rigors that she applies. So th this structure, this 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 is all the traditional way of making the uh, the patterning that um, in the uh, north of Mexico City the gentlemen. Um, okay. Clothing oh. that often was part of what mariachis wear. Okay. You know, so, but then a lot of her other stuff is much more to do with weaving and sewing. But she takes different skills, and this was all dying out. This this is sort of with sewing and with heat. Yeah, so we're looking um. at a beautiful golden <laughs> design on the front <laughs> that yeah. uh, makes almost an arrow, an Aztec arrowhead um, it's on a, a central it's pocket it's on the front. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks quite strange. like the sort of um, Mitla key motif type design that yeah. you get on the. But um, but she's a wonderful woman. She's married to an artist. Um, they live in Mexico City, the most amazing, mm. busy, wonderful sort of studio um, artist space where she does her designs and he's a sculptor and installation artist. But it's more that she's also very social, it's a, it's a, her, her company is a social enterprise mm. um, and she, she'd started off working uh, and studying with a very famous historian of indigenous clothing and indigenous techniques so she's she's done she's taken those ideas and done something different with them yeah i really like that idea of taking traditional crafting techniques and not only preserving them but putting them to their best potential within the current fashion climate exactly and, and allowing exactly. them to access the so it'll be great if she uh, if, if it all um, i think it'll happen quite soon mm. that we'll, we'll try and work more closely with her but um, of course, the other good thing about it is that this is black. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Black yeah. with a bit of gold. Yeah, you know, as, soon yeah. as, I, as soon as I saw it, I thought, well, this is the one I've got to get. Exactly. You know, like Which is, a, uh, yeah, it's a cool style for you. I definitely noticed your jewellery and things in meetings. I think, yeah, they're <laughs> a cool palette and then uh, experiments beyond with, yeah. with um, unexpected detailing. And when you were describing her and her work, again, the sense of place, the fact she's from Mexico, but also that busy life with the studio is important yeah. to you. Yeah. It's been a real running yeah. theme through our yeah. conversation. Um, so I'll ask you one more question. Um, I'm really interested in where is wardrobes, and it's something that we collect in LCF's archives. So it's where we'll collect particular pieces that belong to a person, and we use them to um, maybe uh, as a legacy project or something to explore their biography. If I asked you to donate a piece, what would you want to be represented by in a collection? What item of clothing? Or from what you just said, it could be jewellery. That's difficult, isn't it? I have some things that... I would love to be safer than in a uh, chest in my house. I've got a an Aussie Clark dress, and, and sorry, an Aussie Clark blouse, which is almost nothing. <laughs> it's a little bit of chiffon, yeah, <laughs> and uh, that was my prized possession. Mm. And a Celia Burt Burtwell scarf again, sort of chiffon. Both of these things feel like they're going to fall to bits at any moment, but I'm so sentimental about the memory of how special they felt. Yes. Um, but I, that's probably a little bit wrong of me to try and use this opportunity as just a way to save something. I don't know. I think it would have to be um, something like that, though. Something that was a really special thing for me when I first got it. Yeah, because it's the feeling of being able to get something really special that I think represents me, not the thing itself. Yeah, exactly. The, the idea of the prize possession. If I had the pink boots, I'd give them. Yes, to I was wondering if you were going to say the pink boots. Yeah, and or, or something that you found on Portobello and had that experience exactly. of, of the of the the hunt and the, yes. the chase yes. and the satisfaction yes. when it yeah, when yeah. it does 
does suit you. Well, I think that's a beautiful uh, image to close on. So thank, thank you so you much for your much. time and conversation. No, and thank you, Susanna. It was, it was very enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for listening.